If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. <laughs> And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Tomorrow, Monday the 19th of September, we'll see the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. And so today we have a special edition of our Everything You Wanted to Know series – all about the history of royal funerals. To find out more about this historic tradition, Rhiannon Davis spoke to Tracy Borman, royal historian, author, and joint chief curator of historic royal palaces. So what distinguishes a monarch's funeral from a funeral for another high-profile figure, for instance, for a prime minister or another member of the royal family who isn't a monarch? Well, on the face of things, it can seem like spot the difference because they are both quite similar, great state occasions. But one of the key differences uh, is who organises them. So a ceremonial royal funeral is the responsibility of the Lord Chamberlain. Now, that's the most senior official in the royal household, while a state funeral is organised by the Earl Marshal. And then there are sort of more detailed differences. For example, um, the coffin is drawn by horses at a royal ceremonial funeral, as opposed to sailors from the Royal Navy quite often for a state funeral. Although, of course, there are personal differences and preferences. One of my favourite of those is that for King Edward VII's uh, funeral, he stipulated that his beloved fox terrier, Caesar, take pride of place in the funeral procession. And just to clarify for our listeners, because there is a lot of jargon associated with this, a monarch's funeral would typically be a state funeral, whereas a royal ceremonial funeral, confusingly, wouldn't be for a monarch, correct? That's absolutely right. So only a monarch or head of state can have a state funeral. There can be very lavish uh, ceremonial funerals for other members of the royal family. And we certainly saw that, for example, with the funeral of Princess Diana back in 1997. But that wasn't a state funeral. And has anyone ever rejected a state funeral? 
Now, a number of interesting historical figures have actually uh, rejected a state funeral. Uh, they include uh, Florence Nightingale, of course, the pioneering nurse. Uh, her family opted for a private ceremony instead. Uh, Charles Darwin uh, was honoured by a major funeral in Westminster Abbey, but not a state funeral at the request of his family. More recently, prior to her death, Margaret Thatcher apparently was offered but declined a full state funeral in the interests of economy. Who has traditionally paid for royal funerals in history? Traditionally, royal funerals have been paid for by the state and Parliament uh, grants the money um, for funerals. So it involves the the new monarch um, and their family applying to Parliament for the funds and ultimately then it's picked up by the taxpayer. So you've touched on this in a previous answer, but I wanted to break down the process for a state funeral. What elements does it include? So the process for a state funeral uh, is typically along the lines of that established by Queen Victoria in 1901. So much royal tradition begins with Victoria, but there are some key differences. So the body will be conveyed to Westminster Hall for lying in state. Now, actually, this is something Victoria specifically requested not to have. So that's a key difference. But otherwise, there is the lying in state prior to uh, the funeral. And Westminster Hall has been used for lying in state since Edward VII uh, in 1910. So I was quite surprised it wasn't a longer history. Obviously, Westminster Hall itself uh, dates back well over 900 years, but it's only since Edward VII that it's been used for the lying in. And then um, the, uh, the, the coffin is taken from Westminster Hall to the place of the funeral. Now, in recent times, and I'm saying recent in terms of the you know, hundred or so years, the funeral of the monarch has taken place at Windsor. And that was certainly the case uh, with Queen Victoria. But uh, Elizabeth II's funeral, uh, the venue for that is, of course, Westminster Abbey. And so that has rung the changes. And you might imagine how much ceremony accompanies that state funeral. And the overarching theme is of the military. And this is a theme that really has been closely linked to the monarchy throughout its history. When you get kings who were warriors as well as being you know, heads of state, And more recently, Queen Victoria, again, she wanted to kind of revive this military flavour to her own funerals. She said that she wanted to be buried as a soldier's daughter. And so, you know, the the military was uh, very, very prominent throughout the funeral procession and throughout the funeral service itself. Now, a more recent feature of state funerals uh, for monarchs is the ringing of Big Ben on the day of the funeral before 10am, as many strokes as there were years in the dead monarch's life. And what's the earliest royal funeral in the country that we know about? Well, really, it seems that for as long as we have records of kings, um, then we have records of funerals. What we don't have are the details of those funerals. We have usually the place of burial. Um, So, for example, 
The king who is often cited as being England's first uh, is Egbert, uh, who died in 839. He was actually king of Wessex. This is when we had a heptarchy. The kingdom was actually seven separate kingdoms. But he was sort of acknowledged as the lead king, if you like. Um, And he was buried in Winchester, which was very much the capital of Wessex. And Winchester remained the favourite place of burial uh, for the early kings of England until Athelstan, um, who's another one who tends to be cited as the first king of England. Uh, He courted controversy 100 years later in 939 by choosing instead Malmesbury Abbey for his interment. And you mentioned that details are scant for these earliest funerals, but do we have a sense of how the ceremony surrounding royal funerals and state funerals has evolved over the centuries? They have always been very elaborate occasions, but I think it's fair to say that certainly from the reign of Victoria, they have become ever more ostentatious. The pomp and the pageantry writ large. Now, one of the biggest differences um, in the early uh, royal state funerals is the timing. Because like, interestingly, like royal weddings, uh, they tended to take place late at night. Now, of course, uh, they're in the daytime, Elizabeth II's at 11am. But yeah, in previous centuries, uh, they were, monarchs were laid to rest after sunset. That seems to have been a really key criteria. And do we know why that's changed? I think the reason for the change, as with so many things, uh, was the need to be more visible to their subjects. And this need became, I guess, more urgent as uh, the power of the monarchy waned. And so um, obviously during the 17th century, we have um, the English Civil War and and the monarchy is toppled altogether. It's abolished for a while. King Charles I is executed. And when the monarchy comes back with Charles II, it's very much um, on a different footing with Parliament. And the monarchy can no longer count on the goodwill and support unquestioningly of its subjects. So they're much more accessible. They're held at a time of day and place where lots of their subjects can come and pay their respects. And thinking about other changing ceremonies, how has the dress code of a royal funeral changed? Now, the dress code for royal funerals is something that actually doesn't have much to do with Queen Victoria, I'm pleased to say. So I'm going to give a different answer for this one. Because um, ironically, Victoria, given the fact that after Albert's death, she wore nothing but black, she surrounded herself with black, she wrote on you know, um, black lined paper. For her own funeral, she didn't want any black. Um, so uh, she, she wanted nice, bright colours. She wanted her coffin to be draped in white and her horses to be apparelled in that. So it's quite ironic. But black generally was the colour throughout history. And um, those attending a royal funeral would be swathed in full length black mourning cloaks and hoods, uh, barely recognisable. They're just these hooded figures. And you see that most clearly in the funeral procession of Elizabeth I in 1603. Now, we're very fortunate because a beautiful, very detailed illustration of that still survives in the British Library. And so you can see what everyone's wearing, and it's basically black. And the only colour 
comes from the heralds and they take their pride of place in the procession. They wore tabards over their mourning cloaks and they carried the late monarch's achievements. It listed uh, in a colourful banner um, during the procession. There would also be a bit of uh, colour given by the actual, the the coffin and this cloth of state with which uh, it was covered. But if you are attending a funeral, you would very much be dressed in black. And you mentioned gun carriages earlier in our conversation, and I wanted to ask you about two other specific practices connected to royal funerals. And the first is carrying a wax effigy of the monarch near the coffin. Why was that so popular? Wax effigies became popular from the 14th century onwards, and it became the custom for a lifelike wax effigy of the deceased monarch, fully dressed in their royal robes to be carried either on or near the coffin. It seems a little bit creepy perhaps to us today. And actually, previously, the embalmed body of the monarch would actually be displayed um, as well. Um, Well, the last effigy of a monarch to be carried in procession was that of James I. So the first king of a united England and Scotland when, when he died in 1625. And since the funeral of James's grandson, Charles II, the effigy has been replaced by a crown, as we saw with Elizabeth II's procession to her lying in state. Now, I would just like to say a word about how useful the effigies are because a lot of them still survive and they're kept at Westminster Abbey and they give us all sorts of interesting details about these long deceased monarchs, not just what they look like, but in the case of of Mary I, Bloody Mary, her distended stomach, her swollen stomach. And we we know um, she thought she was pregnant and she wasn't. She most likely had uh, a cyst or a tumour which may have been what killed her. And that swollen stomach is is shown. Likewise, Edward III, who died in 1372, his his, um, effigy shows his face is sort of twisted, it's contorted, which suggests that he died of a stroke. And the other practice I wanted to ask you about is collecting royal relics. When did that fall out of favour? Well, collecting royal relics is something um, that was very much an ancient tradition, stretching back centuries. It really is derived from this uh, ancient belief that uh, a king or a queen is almost divine. Um, and and anybody who touches them w- will benefit from that. Of course, they had ceremonies such as touching for the king's evil, where it was believed that a king or a queen could could c- cure scrofula. And likewise, um, anything that touched a monarch, their clothing, that was believed to have magical properties. So you might imagine funeral processions are fair game. You know, I mentioned the heralds would have been uh, carrying banners. There's there's the cloth of state over the coffin, even the clothes that were worn by the funeral effigy. All of those, of course, would have been absolute gold dust for any relic hunters. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Elizabeth II's funeral uh, is not predicted to stray too far from the royal state funerals that we've seen, certainly in the last hundred or so years. And we know that uh, royal tradition was close to her heart. So that is entirely in keeping. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. 
But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So now that we've focused on some of the specific practices, I wanted to delve more into those various components of the funeral. And the one that I wanted to discuss next is the funeral procession, so when the coffin is being conveyed to its resting place. Throughout history, who would typically walk in this procession? Were women always allowed to take part? Well, throughout history, the the funeral procession tended to comprise members of the late monarch's household, uh, usually uh, privy councillors as well, peers, the judiciary, other sort of office holders, as well as uh, since Victoria, lots of members of the armed forces. Now, as for women, it's actually been quite rare to see them in attendance at funerals, uh, certainly you know the funerals of monarchs, although there are a couple of exceptions I'd just like to mention, and they are the women of Queen Anne's household who did walk in her funeral procession uh, in 1714. She, of course, was the last Stuart monarch. And another notable occasion, I can't go throughout a podcast without mentioning Elizabeth I at least half a dozen times. And uh, women were very much in evidence during the funeral procession of Queen Elizabeth. They had accompanied her body from Richmond Palace, where she died, uh, to Whitehall, where she lay in state. And they dominated her funeral procession. And you see them all in the illustration that survives, all cloaked in black. And it was said that as Elizabeth's coffin passed by the crowds, diverse of the beholders fell a-weeping, especially the women. And you mentioned that members of the household would walk. I wanted to ask about the role of the new monarch, the deceased monarch's heir. What role would they typically play in a state funeral? The new monarch historically played no role in the funeral of their predecessor. In fact, there was almost a superstitious fear by a monarch to be associated too closely with death. So they wouldn't attend. It wasn't a lack of respect. Uh, it, it was more this sort of superstitious fear, as I said. Um, and that really endured uh, pretty much until the 20th century. Now, the exception was William IV. Now, he succeeded his brother, George IV, in 1830. And not only did he attend uh, his brother's funeral, uh, but he published a personal message of thanks in the Gazette for all who had participated. So he left nobody in any doubt that he had been there at the funeral. So you've touched on the role of the public in some of your previous answers, but I wanted to drill into this a bit deeper here. Before the invention of TV and radio, how would they be made aware of royal funerals? Well, before the invention of modern communications, the subjects of the deceased monarch would be made aware of the death in a number of different ways. Uh, First and foremost, uh, messengers from the court. There was a very well-established network um, of messengers uh, across uh, England and then across Britain. Now, that had been well-established even by the 12th 
century. And messengers were used to carrying news from the royal court, proclamations, helping to drum up support for, for overseas wars. And of course, they would also carry news of the deaths of kings and queens. And I'm always struck by how efficient these networks were. You tend to think it must have taken weeks and, you know, that the funeral would have been and gone before anybody knew about it. But actually, in a matter of hours, these networks kicked uh, you know, into action. And and so it was a much swifter um, system of, of communication than is often uh, believed. And as well as messengers, you had uh, the priests um, in, in local churches. They would, they would use their sermons to convey uh, the news. And people, if they heard about it in time, would actually make their way uh, to line the processional route. Although really throughout much history, certainly in an age of fairly slow transport, most of those lining the processional route would be living in London. And on the flip side of the public face of things, are any parts of the funeral traditionally private? I think funerals really, until the advent of television, were very private um, affairs. Um, the, the invited guests uh, would be able to witness probably 90% um, of, of the service, perhaps not so much the interment, which would just be uh, members of the family, although not the new monarch. But all of that changed, of course, uh, with the advent um, of television. And that's something obviously very new and that we've seen increasingly, uh, even up to the accession council of King Charles III televised for the very first time. So, so that has revolutionised things. Before then, much of this, um, if you are lucky enough to be invited, you would get to experience it and to see it. Otherwise, you would just have to read about it. So, so far, we focused quite heavily on English monarchs. Do we have any examples of how the funerals of Scottish or Welsh kings and queens were commemorated? We have many examples of how the funerals of Scottish and Welsh monarchs uh, were conducted. And an example that really stands out is that of the funeral of Robert I, better known as uh, Robert the Bruce of Scotland in 1329. Now, he was venerated across Scotland for his you know, brave achievements in, in seeing off much of English domination of, of Scotland. Now, his body was embalmed. That was very traditional. And there's a lovely detail. I'm not sure if lovely is the right word, but that his heart was given to one of his faithful knights, a, a gentleman called Sir James Douglas, who placed it in a silver casket and wore it on a chain around his neck for the rest of his life. Um, now, Robert's uh, body, um, bits of it were buried in different places, but um, his, his remains, uh, most of his remains, uh, were interred uh, in the funeral, uh, which took place in Dunfermline Abbey. And uh, he was buried in a wooden coffin, but interred within a stone vault beneath the floor, underneath this lavish tomb of white Italian marble that had been purchased all the way in Paris. Now, looking at a Welsh example, um, Owen Glendower, a Welsh leader, often called the King of Wales, uh, known as a Welsh rebel uh, in England. He led a long-running war of independence to end English rule in Wales. Uh, he formed the first Welsh parliament, many other achievements. So you might imagine that when he died, when he was in his 60s, in about 1415, they went to town with the funeral. But 
it wasn't without mishaps because uh, the king had been in hiding for a number of years and um, he was buried. And when his grave was actually discovered by his enemies, um, he had to be reburied because they thought they would kind of plunder his remains. And he was reburied. But we still don't know where. And controversy still rages. Lots of historians have different theories as to where Owen Glendower actually ended up. So continuing to think about burial places then, are any monarchs buried outside of the UK? There are a couple of British monarchs buried outside of the UK for very good reason. James II, so brother of Charles II, he was ousted from his throne after just three years. He managed to upset Parliament with his high-handed attitude. He sought exile in France, and of course there were Jacobite revolts in his name, but never succeeded in uh, placing him back on the throne. And he actually died whilst in France, and he was uh, buried close to the centre of Paris. Another example um, is that of George I, our first Hanoverian king. As his reign progressed in the early 18th century, he spent more and more time in Hanover because he much preferred it to Britain. And he was actually on a visit to Hanover when he died in 1727. And so he was buried there and his remains were ultimately uh, buried in the palace of Herrenhausen. Uh, They were moved, but that's where they ended up. And I think George would have been rather pleased with that. And I'd like to spend the last part of our conversation focusing specifically on Queen Elizabeth II's funeral. What input did she have in planning the funeral? The Queen, in common with every monarch in recent times, was said to have had quite a detailed input into the planning of her own funeral. Quite what that's like, I can't imagine, but it's par for the course with a monarch. We don't know exactly which elements, and we probably will never know, but we just know she was involved, she was consulted. Now, given that Elizabeth II was a bastion of tradition, she always upheld the sort of royal tradition, the pomp and pageantry, uh, we can imagine that she approved much of that. But what really struck me from researching this, is that plans for her funeral were first drawn up in the 1960s. So goodness me, they must have gone through quite a few iterations until 2022. And is Elizabeth II's funeral expected to break any established historic traditions or to set any new precedents? Elizabeth II's funeral uh, is not predicted to stray too far from the royal state funerals that we've seen, certainly in the last hundred or so years. And we know that uh, royal tradition was close to her heart. So that is entirely in keeping. But I think that new precedents are going to be set in terms of sheer numbers of people who turn out in person to watch the procession and who tune in globally um, to to watch on their television sets, to watch on social media, live streaming. That, I think, will undoubtedly be record-breaking. And I think, really, that's entirely fitting for a monarch who broke all sorts of records herself. Of course, she was our longest reigning monarch, the only monarch to celebrate a platinum jubilee, and so the list goes on. And I think it was almost poetic that the record that she almost looked like not breaking, but just did, was that two days before her death, she welcomed in 
her 15th Prime Minister, Liz Truss, and broke the record, therefore. So I think it's very fitting that Elizabeth II, our longest reigning monarch, I think her funeral is going to honour the, the very long and illustrious tradition of royal funerals in Britain. That was Tracy Borman, a royal historian, author and joint chief curator of historic royal palaces. If you'd like to hear more from Tracy on royal history, she recently recorded a five-part masterclass on the history of the monarchy for us. You can find that by searching for Tracy Borman at historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. (laughs) 